Last week we looked at Mary's praise, her blessing of praise, her Magnificat to, um, to God over this blessing. We saw Elizabeth bless Mary. And so this week we're going to be looking at the birth of John and Zechariah's blessing there. I want us to, again, note what we did last week. We see the word prophesying in Scripture. We see this feeling filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking these praises and these blessings to God. We see what this really is, which is this blessing of praise to God and praise to others. It's not this um, often not a miraculous foretelling, although certainly there's that in Scripture. Today we're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist as well as Zechariah's response. So just to quickly recap how we got to this point in history, the birth of John. We had Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were old. They were righteous. She was barren without children. She had lived a full godly life, but was unable to have kids. And then the angel Gabriel comes to get to Zechariah while he is in the temple, while he's fulfilling this ceremonial duty, kind of chosen by Lot, of quite the honor, and he's in there. And Gabriel comes to him and says, you will have a child. You and your wife at this old age will have a child. He will be filled with the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the older generation to the younger. Right? He says he'll turn this, uh, the sinful generation to the righteous. And he will make people ready for the coming Messiah. This is what Gabriel tells Zechariah. And how does Zechariah respond? In disbelief. Like, how will this be? I'm old. And of course, Gabriel says to him, and again, this is my intonation, my inflection, but I know it's pretty accurate. He's like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Do you know who I am, bro? That is what Gabriel says. And Gabriel says, okay, you need a sign. Here is your sign. You will be mute. You will not be able to speak. You will be silent for the next nine months or so until this comes to fulfillment. And then we saw Mary go visit Elizabeth, his wife, during her pregnancy. And so fullness of time comes. Here we are, the birth of John. So we're going to look at this passage today and we're going to see probably four main points. We're going to go pretty line by line through that song of praise. But we're going to see that God uses his means for his plans we're going to see just the flat out bless God who has saved us from our enemies. We're going to see that John will be a prophet of the Most High. And then this gospel truth is worth living for. And that's been hitting home to me a lot lately. And I hope I can share some of what's in my heart there. So reviewing verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and rejoiced with her. And after the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father. They're appealing to Zechariah. Are you sure this is what you want? Inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and he said, his name is John. And they all wondered, note this part, they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And, and we're going to look today at what he spoke. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country. Everyone heard this, and they talked about it. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? 
for the hand of the Lord is with him. So looking at John's birth here, right? And this is under the first heading, note takers, of God uses his means for his plans. We see John is born. We see that it says his friends and relatives, they heard. So we knew that Mary, uh, Elizabeth kept her pregnancy hidden for five months, but maybe from a lot of people most of the entire time. And so they hear just now in this passage, they hear and they come and they rejoice and they give glory to God. Right. Scripture tells us rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's what they're doing here. This old righteous woman now has this miracle baby and they didn't know about it. She was hidden. And here they are rejoicing with her, celebrating. And so they come to this event on the eighth day, his circumcision. Don't forget, John was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. This was customary. This was tradition. This was quite the celebration, much like a marriage might be. Um, it was a big deal. The town gets together. The friends and family get together for this circumcision. And culturally, it was time to name this baby. And so Zechariah, still mute. When we say the word mute, we're, we pretty much mean deaf, okay? Now, there's not completely 100% accurate, but it's highly likely as evidenced by the sense that they made signs to this father. Like, hey, they made signs to Zechariah what it should be called. If, if, he was just de- if he was just mute but could hear perfectly, they would just say, hey, nod, yes or no, John? Right? And so clearly there's something more to it. I'm not saying it's definitive, but most scholars believe he was mute and deaf. And they wanted to name him after his father. They're telling Elizabeth what we're going to name him. Don't worry, Elizabeth. We'll take care of naming the baby for you. Right? And so Elizabeth says, he shall be called John. Right? And, and they tried to make signs to Zechariah to overrule this. No, it, is, it should be named after you, right? Something with someone in your family. And so he confirms this. He asks for this writing tablet. And he writes his name is John. At that moment, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the angel Gabriel, right? What does Gabriel say? You will have a son. He shall be filled with the power of Elijah and you shall call him John. He is named John. His mouth is opened. After nine months of silence and likely deafness, his mouth is opened. And what does he do? He begins to bless and praise and honor God. It says he is immediately filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit and begins prophesying. Just like we saw last week with Elizabeth, just like we saw with Mary. And we see this word prophesying. What is he saying? He's just heaping praises on God. And it tells us that fear, fear came on all the neighbors. Fear came on all the neighbors. The Greek word phobia, we know what that means, especially if you have a spider near you. This fear, this is a fear of the Lord we see in Scripture. Right. This is that awe when people kind of get a bit confused to what that means. This is that. Oh, I am dealing with something much bigger than myself. That is the fear of the Lord. These people had witnessed a miracle. This is a small town. This is a small community, at least certainly the Jewish community, the subsect of where they're living. There is a temple. They know Zechariah. They know Elizabeth. They were there. Many of them were or certainly heard about it when he came out of the temple nine months ago. I'm mute. I can't talk. Something happened. It tells us something happened. They knew something happened and he went away. And nine months later, this old lady comes back with a baby. Right. They had seen this. He'd lived in this silence. And it tells us all these things were talked about through all the hill country in Judea. 
All who laid, heard this laid them up in their hearts. This was committed to their memory. This was seared into their brain. Right? And then they see after this time of silence and muteness, his mouth is opened. And we have the, this miracle baby and he begins prophesying. This was stored in their hearts. This was seared into their brains. They didn't have Marvel Avengers movies and CGI and can see the most fantastic things in the world. A light switch would have made a memorable impression on them. Okay, and so they see this miracle and it sticks with them. And we're going to see how that comes into play later. But this sticks with them. They say, wow, wow. This was impressive. And again, what's the whole point of Luke? This is the definitive retelling of the story of Jesus, the Messiah, as he's talking to his Gentile audience. This is what happened when he says, I talked to many eyewitnesses. Well, here's a bunch of eyewitnesses that the word spread throughout the entire county. The Holy Spirit moving is evident here, right? They knew this barren, righteous old woman. They probably, some of them probably knew her for her entire life, whether it's 50, 60, 70, 80 years. I don't know how old she is. But she didn't roll into town last month and tell everyone how righteous she was and then come out with a miracle baby. Like, there's no doubting her story. They knew her. This was authenticated. And they knew that she was barren. They knew that Zechariah had seen an angel, had seen something, seen a vision, they thought, right? And was made mute. And then here again with this baby, and he opens his mouth and he bursts forth with all these praises for the Lord, declaring that his child will be a prophet of the Most High. And most importantly, that he will give knowledge of salvation on the forgiveness of sins. So again, we see that they are filled with this awe and this wonder and this righteous, reverent fear of the Lord. But also a curiosity, it tells us, of what then this child will be. This is an unusual child. They stored this up in their minds. Have you ever seen anything like this? The only example that really comes to my mind is Tiger Woods, who was on TV at age two hitting golf balls, right? And Bob Hope and I think Jimmy Stewart are on that TV show. And then he comes across at like age 13 and wins a U.S. amateur. I'm exactly Tiger's age, so it's not like I was older watching this. But if you were older golf fanatic watching this young guy come on the scene, right, enter his first pro tournament at 16, you're probably doing something like, that's special. I'm going to keep an eye on that guy, right? Magnify that by infinity right here. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to keep an eye on that kid. Clearly, this was a miracle, and it was obvious to all. And the object of this miracle was not Zechariah's muteness, but the child that was born. They'll keep this in mind, and we'll see this how this comes in a little bit more. But again, this is a small community, right? So this is kind of the opposite of where we are right now in North Idaho with this influx of Californians, right? But this influx of people who have no history with what happened five years ago. I'll hear a story. Oh, I remember there was no traffic lights in that street. I'm like, I don't. Like, well, you know, you turn right at this store. I don't remember that store, right? So there's a lot of people who, who now here don't have any kind of real long-term ties or recollection here. They lived and died in this community. There was not a lot of mobility. This stuck with them. They knew this. So when John grows up later on, we're going to see 20, 30 years down the road, whenever John begins his ministry, we don't know how long he wandered in the desert, preaching, proclaiming before Jesus arrived. 
But people remembered this birth. When some young guy came home, Mom, there's this crazy dude out in the desert, but he's dropping knowledge. His mom didn't say, oh, really? Who is this guy? She goes, no, I remember that kid. I remember that birth. Let me tell you what happened when he was born. This was, this was used by God. This is God's hand in the miracle birth, in the proof text of the muteness and the birth and the prophesying that you can trust what this is, is from the Lord. This child who will make way for the Messiah, who will start preparing the hearts of these people, even at his birth, to receive the Messiah. God is using these extraordinary means to start preparing, laying the groundwork, planting the seeds for the coming Messiah. 20, 30, this is about 30 years before Jesus comes, right? He is starting even now through this miracle birth. God does this with us as well. Maybe not with extraordinary means, but with ordinary means. God is working in our lives even now to prepare us for something better in the future. We might just see a bunch of things happening. We might just deal with hardships or, or blessings. But God has a plan and God is always working for our good right now. God uses this old woman with good reputation, this muting of John to prepare the hearts and minds of those 30 years down the road to meet their Messiah. This was no accident, but also it's no accident that you're sitting right here today, that you're in this church, in this community, in the lives of your friends, at the job you're in. None of this is an accident. God is preparing your hearts for something in your future, and I don't know what that is, and there's a good chance you don't either. But trust God is working in your life in ways seen and unseen. Moving on, we're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy here. We're going to go through this in a bit of a straight verse-by-verse fashion, but you'll be able to pick out the points, I think, that are on the bulletin. Verse 67 And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Like we saw last week, like we already talked about with Mary, Zechariah is filled with this Holy Spirit. And it tells us clearly, he begins to prophesy. But this is praising the Lord, blessing God, blessing his son, putting these, proclaiming these blessings out there. And he's praising this God. Bless God who has redeemed his people Israel. This is our righteous response to God in all things. But especially in blessings. When you see God's hand in your life, when you experience God's forgiveness in a very real way, when you see God doing something in your life, whether it's challenging and he's growing you or it's just a good blessing, praise him, bless him, thank him. Honor Him with your lips, with your lives, with your words, with your actions. Go back to all these promises that they'd been holding on to, these people who are listening right now. We see this phrase, redeemed. He's redeemed His people. This past tense and future perfect. So this whole working of the last nine months of this pregnancy... This promise that we have to come with this birth of this child, fulfilling the words of Gabriel... So right now, with the birth of this child, but also with the coming Messiah, who's on this earth at this moment, six months old in Mary's belly, 
the past tense, the future promise, this currently unfolding plan because, because of this Messiah, God has redeemed his people. God didn't redeem his people through John. God redeems his people through this coming Messiah. In verse 69, and he raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Raised a horn of salvation. This comes from uh, a Jewish, old Jewish um, prayer dating back to this time that said, Blessed be thou, O God, who causes the horn of salvation to sprout forth. I don't think it takes a PhD in theology to guess what the horn of salvation is. This is the Messiah to be born. And this was a current prayer. These people at this time were looking for the horn of salvation. And they knew it would come from the house of his servant David. And when it continues to theme on, the next verse, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So these prophets, these prophecies are being fulfilled at this moment. These people were waiting for their Messiah, this horn of salvation. Zechariah saying, here it is, here it is. 2 Samuel 7, we see this, starting in verse 11. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to David, but of course the Nathan was speaking from the Lord. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And this is when David had been trying to build a temple. And Nathan is saying, your son will do this, but also that near fulfillment, far fulfillment. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Okay, so that's obviously not referring to Jesus because Jesus isn't going to commit iniquity. But the next line, with the stripes of the son of men. Hmm. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This time the house of Israel did not have their eternal throne, and they still don't. This was not speaking of the material blessings of a promise of a kingdom that, they, that the time that the first century Jews were looking for. But no, the fulfillment, the ultimate forever kingdom, the everlasting throne. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, right? So those go together. He raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. I'm going to compare this a little bit with Luke 18. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. We're looking to be saved from our enemies. We're looking for justice. We can see this verse, verse 71 here, in a couple different ways. On one hand, one hand it is Israel, the nation's cry for salvation from their national enemies, right? They're not a nation. They are ruled by Rome. You could call it oppression. You could call it just subjugation. And they were eagerly awaiting their Messiah. God has promised us through Abraham. We know we're coming to take charge, baby. 
This is our future. That's what they were looking for. They were not looking for the humble servant who came to die for their sins and for the sins of the world. They wanted the conquering hero. They wanted the man with the sword who's going to conquer their enemies, elevate them to prominence. So that's one way of looking at this. The other way is the enemy of sin, the hand of the evil one. Luke talks more about individual salvation than any other gospel writer, the forgiveness of sins, salvation. In this context, kind of like a parallel to Luke 18, which I think is still uh, not up there anymore. So we have these who elect, those who are chosen by God for salvation, unto the forgiveness of sins, crying out to God day and night, pleading for mercy and forgiveness of sins. And we see Israel crying out for their Messiah. Your cries have been heard, O Israel, Zechariah is saying. Your cries have been heard. But also, sinner, your cries have been heard. Cry out to God and he will hear you. He will give you justice with great speed. Not Israel nationally, but Israel salvifically into all of us through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just like we saw, right? these are these OG promises going back to the beginning of Israel's history. That's the clear understanding that Zechariah is saying this child is the prophet of the one who's fulfilling these promises. The theme of Luke, as we've been talking about, and I'm going to keep repeating likely, is that we can trust that everything we're reading has taken place. Gentiles, Christians, you've heard these things about Jesus. You've seen him. Let me write it out. Here's the accurate historical record so that you can know what really happened concerning this man, Jesus. Again, I spoke to all these eyewitnesses. You've heard these rumors of miracles. I went out. I documented it. I got them down for you. Even back to the birth of John the Baptist, those who saw his father's muteness, those who saw this old woman be born. These are the things that Jesus taught, is what Luke's saying. But also, he's tying this back to their promises of Israel. Luke's audience is current, first century current, but also us Gentile readers who didn't grow up in the temple, didn't grow up with the promises of Isaiah and Abraham and Joseph. He's telling them Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was the Messiah promised thousands of years ago or at least centuries ago, depending on when you want to go. This nation of Israel, these Hebrews who have been waiting for this Messiah, this is him, full circle. He ties Jesus back to these promises of Israel. Psalm 97.10 O you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of your wicked. This dual prophecy, again, we see here, preserves the lives of his saints, delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Yes, preserves the lives of a human from a sword-wielding enemy, but also the eternal life from the ungodly influence of the wicked. This is his covenant with Abraham, fulfilled. 
And it tells us the reason why here. Why? That we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Brothers and sisters, I humbly come before you and I tell you, this has been one of the strongest convictions in my heart over the last few months. This is why we are created, that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. What's the Westminster Catechism tell us? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what matters. This is what matters desperately more than anything. In the Garden of Eden, this circle was broken. God created man for fellowship with him, to enjoy him, to be with him for his glory. But God knew we'd sin. God knew he'd have to send his son on the cross to die for our sins, to pay for us so that we can be made whole with God, that we may be made blameless in his sight so that we can be holy and righteous before him all of our days, so that we can serve him without fear. This is why we are here. This is why God sent his Messiah. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go, de- go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah now switches here to blessing his son. First he blessed God. But now it's now you, son, bless this child. He gives us prayer blessing over his newborn baby. Many fathers would do that to a newborn child, I'm sure. This is the best kid ever born. This kid's going to be great. The next Tiger Woods and Derek Jeter rolled into one. This is not what Zechariah is saying. Zechariah knew scripture. He was a righteous man who served in the temple all his life. Here he is directly quoting from Scripture in his prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Zechariah is not hoping his son becomes a doctor and gives him grandchildren. Zechariah's promise that his son will serve his God his entire life. John is this prophet spoken of by Isaiah, who comes to declare the promise of God. John is to go before the Lord and prepare his way. What does that mean to prepare his way? What does that mean to prepare his way? Even we saw in his birth to spark the thought process in people's mind. There's something unique here. There's something special happening. God is moving. I can feel it. What were they filled with? The awe of the Holy Spirit, the fear of the Lord. They sense God moving here. This is John, even in his birth, preparing the way. And then, really directly, John 1.29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John has a singular focus, tunnel vision, unwavering, laser-like focus. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The Messiah is coming. Repent and be baptized. Verse 77 is going to continue on Zechariah's blessing to his son. So we see he begins to bless his son, to declare the reason why his son is here. His miraculous existence tied back to the promises of Isaiah. And he says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation 
to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's only goal in life, the one thing that consumes him day and night, he didn't take weekends off to go golfing, to go on a boys' trip. He had one calling in his life, and he lived it to the fullest, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of sins. And we know what that knowledge is, right? He says it over and over, repent and be baptized. Brothers and sisters, repent. Repent of your sin and be baptized. Turn from your sin. People would flock to the desert, no doubt a long journey. And they'd go out there. They didn't have cars, right? The lucky ones might have had donkeys, but they walked. And they'd go hear this crazy guy preach. And what would he tell them? You're a sinner. Turn from your sin and repent. And he'd give practical ways to live holy. This is what you should do, right? Centurion, don't do anything like this. Tax collectors, don't collect more than you need to. And we'll see more of that when we come to Luke 3. But here's Zechariah saying about his own son that when this child is grown, he will declare the Messiah and he will say, repent of your sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we have this comma here that leads into verse 78. says, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins, comma, because of the tender mercy of God. God's tender mercy is in forgiveness of sins and salvation. God who sent his son to be this light into this dark world, this sunrise, this shining light come to this dark world to give light to those of us who sit in darkness or formerly sat in darkness to guide our feet into this path of peace. This is the point. This is the point. From the beginning of time, ever since, and this practice was, this plan was put in place before Adam and Eve were created, but since they sinned, this plan was in place. The sun will come to earth to give light to those in darkness, to give us a path to peace with God. Remember, mankind is at odds with God in our natural state, but through Jesus we can have peace through the forgiveness of our sins. And he ends here, the end of the chapter here, the verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All right, flat out, John grew up as an oddball. We know this. There's a great description of John. Let me read this to you. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locust he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. If you weren't singing along with that in your head, you need to seriously question your upbringing. I see some people going questioning that. That's DC talk, Jesus freak. Get it on loop. John lived like a crazy person, no doubt. No doubt. Away from everyone. He lived out of town. He lived far from people. He ate wild animals. He lived off the land. He made his own clothes. 
right? And up here in North Idaho, half of you might be looking around saying, yeah, that's my uncle, right? But he didn't develop an unhealthy mistrust for government, although he probably should have. He grew strong in the Holy Spirit. Is there any better way to grow up? Heard Aaron shared a sermon from John Piper, right? And one of the things that stuck up with me as we look at John's life here is, as Christians, we are salmon swimming upstream. We are a going against the current. We are going against a society who is evil, who wants us to drift right down that broad river straight to hell. Our lives are to look different. We are to be called weirdos by the world for not partaking in what they call fun and we call sin. I say this very often. Jess heard me go off on it the other day. It's hard to always feel it, and it's hard, even harder to live it. But I say it, and I truly believe it 100% in my heart. The only thing that matters in this life is what we're doing for the next. Do you believe me? Are you building a kingdom for yourself? I said it all the time. Am I building the kingdom of Matt? Or am I building, helping to build the kingdom of heaven? Am I growing in my life skills? Am I golf and my pickleball? Am I so consumed with buying 22 acres so I can have cows for the first time since I was five? Does that consume me doing what I want to do? I'd like to turn this page. Boy, those are really stuck together. We often get caught up in this world, and the things of this world are hard and are challenging, and they feel so important. How often do we feel like heroes for giving God five minutes? What we see here in the life of John is what we call descriptive again, not prescriptive. We're not describing how you should live. We're describing John. We're not saying this is how you should live. Go to the desert. But we should live differently. We should live differently. God says to the rich man who stored up enough grain and treasures to last a lifetime, you fool, don't you know tonight your soul will be required of you? I'm not saying the things in this life don't matter. They do. Raise your kids. Go to work. Clean your house. But I'm saying if, this, if we believe this to be true, then this should matter above everything else. It should dictate and dominate your life. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Does living holy and righteous mean more to you than pleasure, working your garden, building your career, golf, baseball, anything else? It should. It's not easy. I fall for that all the time. Trust me. The cares of this world desperately desire to choke us out. Satan is never happier than when on Sunday morning, trauma, traffic, trains come in place and keep us from worshiping together, keep our hearts from even desiring it, harden our hearts, anything that comes between us and fellowship with God. You are called to raise your kids, to train them in the way they should go. You're called to work hard. You're called to be a good steward and make fi sound financial decisions. As we see with the Proverbs 31 woman in the Acts chapter uh, 2, 3, 4, 5 churches, right? 
We're called to be a protector of those in need. We're called to serve at open arms ministries or clinics. But first and foremost, you are called to live righteously and holy, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is your primary calling in this life. Let everything in your life flow from that. Let everything you do be seen under that lens. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are God. You are great. You are righteous. You are holy. You are worthy of our sacrifice and our adoration, our praise, and our gratitude. You are worthy of being seen as a weirdo. You are worthy of laughter and scorn because we choose to serve you. You are worthy of living in lesser housing or in old cars because we choose to honor you with our lives and not sell ourselves out for the almighty dollar. You are worthy of sacrificing time to protect young women and unborn children. You are worthy of all of this, God. May us see you as more beautiful than anything else in this world. Amen.